Hello, kindred spirits, and welcome to Modcast, the podcast of the Ella Montgomery Institute, broadcasting from the beautiful campus of the University of Prince Edward Island. We're so glad you've tuned in. This is Modcast Season 2, Episode 5. I'm your host, Dr. Brenton Dickinson. In our quest to discover cutting-edge scholarship about the life and works of Lucy Ma Montgomery and join imaginative readers throughout the world, we welcome to the microphone our special guest, Alan McCochran. Alan McCochran is a Canadian history professor at the University of Western Ontario. He has published extensively in environmental history, with a particular focus upon the study of the relationship between humans and nature through time. His most recent book, The Summer Trade, A History of Tourism on Prince Edward Island, which he co-wrote with Dr. Edward McDonald, is about to be published. Dr. McCachran is this year's Ella Montgomery Institute Visiting Scholar. Part of his role includes the planning of the 15th Biennial Conference this year in June with the theme of Ella Montgomery and Revision. Born and raised an Islander, Alan has always been surrounded by Montgomery and has a particular interest in the historical side of her life. Now, Alan, welcome to the Modcast. Thanks a lot, Brenton, for having me. We're going to get into the history, the connection of things. Uh, Modcast listeners are avid readers, so we like to mention the books that are on our desks or our bedside table. And as part of my role uh, with the Applied Communication Leadership and Culture Program at UPEI, I'm teaching the Chronicles of Narnia, actually, in that context. And I've just finished reading the sixth Chronicle, The Magician's Nephew, and about to begin the final book, The Last Battle. Though some of our American listeners will have The Magician's Nephew as the first book in their edition, not the sixth. And I'm also finishing a rereading uh, Mary Shelley's remarkable book, uh, Frankenstein, as well as a short story collection by N.K. Jemison. And um, the Ellen Montgomery Readathon uh, is a kind of a Facebook group that began in the COVID era lockdowns. And so I just finished reading my Story Girl chapter, that was chapter 23 on dreams, just finished that for the readathon. And, and so I'm, 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 I'm caught up with the, with the group there. And, and I actually just started, uh, and she'll come up again later, uh, Julie Pellissier-Lush's uh, new book of, of poetry and art and things like that. So I'm looking forward to really getting into that. It's quite a gorgeous book. So what about, what about yourself? What, what are you reading these days, Alan? Well, I got to say, I think you're doing a lot better than I am these days, Brent. Uh, I'm, I've got this thing where I, I, my reading goes down a lot when I'm writing, and I'm really trying to write this book right now. Um, so I read a lot of kind of airport novels and things like that right. um, while I'm writing. Uh, always lots of mysteries, uh, always looking for a good series. And, but I recently read um, Ghost in the Throat, um, I can't tell you the author's name. It's an, to me, unpronounceable Irish name. Um, an Irish poet of the 21st century writing about discovering, trying to find out biographical information about an, about an Irish poet of the 18th, a real Irish poet of the 18th century. And it's kind of a gorgeous book. And like a lot of books I read these days, they seem to be recommended by Laurie Chevry at the bookmark in Charlottetown. Right. That's actually, that's actually a great uh, source of uh, book. Uh, I yeah. mean, librarians and, and bookstore owners just tend to be that source. I have to say like 
I, I read a lot because like the whip is at my back, right? I'm, I'm, yeah. teaching, I'm teaching the thing. And yeah. I've, got, I've got to have it ready for Tuesday. And so there it is, right? Yeah. It's it. But I'm amazed that uh, I haven't really gotten into mysteries except when they've been sort of physically handed to me. And I'm just amazed. I think about every second guest that we've had so far on the Modcast has as their go-to bedside book is as a mystery of some kind anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of amazed now. I mean, the problem is then you start reading books and if they don't, like if these people are just talking and they don't spend their time also trying to solve a murder, you think they're kind of wasting their time. <laughs> that's right. Well, I still, I still like the characters, even in the, in the great. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's still for me, the, that person, the, the, the coming alive or the falling apart or discovery, whatever it is. Right. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, it's, it's great to have you on the podcast. So uh, just to let listeners know, I have a, I bumped into Alan in the hallways at, at UPEI at, at the university uh, where he's the visiting scholar in at the Ellen Montgomery Institute. And I, the first time we met, it was one of my first times out after one of the series of lockdowns. And I, I, I admit to being just a, a little out of uh, step with the fact that the world continues on outside of my um, little office. And, and it just hadn't occurred to me that the visiting scholar would be visiting. So like, so I was a little kind of uh, set off, but you this, like, it shouldn't be a surprise. This is for you, like a, a place, right? Prince Edward Island is like home. Do you want, do you want to tell us about a bit of your roots there? Uh, sure. I grew up, uh, I grew up in New Argyle, Prince Edward Island, but I think you're right to say that I, um, that it's unusual for this visiting scholar to be visiting. Um, I haven't made it to PEI very much during during the lockdowns and during COVID for sure. Um, so I've been a non-visiting visiting scholar for the most part, but I guess I did see one of one of those rare occasions that I made it. Um, actually, I think at that point, and this gives me a chance to make my first plug of the day, certainly not my last, but um, I'm putting together an exhibit on the history of tourism on PEI for the Confederation Center um, Art Gallery for this coming summer with Ed McDonald. So I think that was one of the things I was scrambling to do when I was home. Right. What was that? Probably November, December, uh, uh, working on that exhibit, which we're still working on, but which will be launched in June, just in time for the LMMI uh, conference. That's so. great. And actually, it's yeah. It, it gives me kind of hope the idea of us being able to have that kind of open door hospitality again, even in closed doors spaces is one of our hopes for kind of the end of the pandemic is Prince Edward Island has been, you know, I think one of the most accessible islands on the planet in one way for so many years, decades of visitors and, and islanders kind of have to find their way in the world, but then to be so enclosed. So it's been so, really a disturbing experience to be so set off from the rest of the continent. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and to be honest, as an Islander off Island, I feel the same way about being kind of closed off from Prince Edward Island. Like, you know, I'm, the joke's been made probably, but like the opposite of come from away is like, you know, don't come from away. But um, it's been interesting to write a book and to finish a book on the history of tourism on Prince Edward Island during COVID. Yeah. And, uh, and we take the book, Ed and I, um, and the book's called The Summer Trade. That's my second plug. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, we take it all the way up to 2021. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. So new, new history as well. And, and we'll have uh, just the details of that will be in the show notes, but that, that book could really be out any day, right? Is that yes. Right? Yeah, definitely. Right. 
Okay. Yeah. And well, there's something, it strikes me like you're a historian of place, of land, location, the, the way that we create imagination around these places rooted to life. Uh, you've written, I think, a couple of of histories with uh is is a wardow uh, wardoff uh, robert wardoff yeah wardoff yeah yeah and and but you've also done some community studies and land uh, studies as well and islanders tend to kind of take their island with them as they go throughout the world when i meet a prince edward islander in london or in tokyo there's still prince edward islanders in a deep kind of way and montgomery had this right she lived half her life in ontario or, yeah. or elsewhere but but still kept PEI. What is it about Prince Edward Island, do you think, from your situation as, as an islander, as a historian? What is it that that ha- makes that effect work inside of us? Um, good question. Uh, well, I think, I mean, there's a lot of personal reasons for me to, to, to find any excuse to get back and to do research on Prince Edward Island and things like that. But I think as a more serious historian, I think I could say that um, two of the real advantages to working on the history of Prince Edward Island or to, to study Prince Edward Island more generally. One is that it's self-contained, that you can, you can look at this political unit, this geographical unit through time, and, and, uh, and it has a nice kind of self-contained nature about it. Um, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna keep making plugs about this summer trade book, but this is the first history of tourism of any province or state in in Canada or the United States, just but it's it's easy to tell a self-contained history of Prince Edward Island. It's not easy, but it's possible to tell a self-contained history. And one of the things I've got to say, um, the sources are amazing for Prince Edward Island, and I I got to I, I give so much credit to the digitization folks at um, UPEI Library for digitizing, and especially Donald Moses for digitizing so much material that makes it possible to study that self-contained place from a distance. So uh, when I wrote the chapters for this book um, and then sent them off, I I did all the research essentially here in Ontario Mm -hmm. and sent it off to Ed McDonald. And he was just amazed at how much material that I'd found that it was accessible to me. So I, I think the the self-contained and the sources nature make it a possible, make it a place you can study. And of course, PEI being PEI, it makes it a place you want to study. So that's, that's really nice. And Ed, of course, who works like in the archive, like not just a history professor at UPI, but also having worked so long, like in that archival project for Prince Edward Island and telling those stories. I think it makes a really nice unit on the question of trade tourism, of course, that the summer trade is in my mind. Uh, I, you know, I grew up in New Glasgow, Prince Edward Island, so which is very picturesque. And so we would always have people kind of sketching or painting at the end of our lane, trying to capture that that valley and things like that. Later um, selfies, uh, but I, I miss that part. So, but like a lot of that is Montgomery, right? Her do her books like how do her books like work as like an invitation to the world in that kind of sense? Because once people get here, it's land and food and friendship and all kinds of things beyond you know visiting Green Gables or even the national park, right? So how does that work? Do her what do her her books or her story do for us as visitors to Prince Edward Island? Um, well, I mean, I think that they 
have introduced so many people, obviously, to Prince Edward Island that that it, it uh, that it gives them a kind of a Cole's Notes version of what, at least what they think Prince Edward Island is going to be. And it's amazing how many, you know, I. I talk to people in the field of environmental history from around the world and I'll mention Prince Edward Island and, and you know what they'll mention first off. I mean, I think it is such an introduction. Um, and Anne of Green Gables just keeps coming at us, right? Like every generation I think must be going to be the last generation. And then there's another iteration. There's another, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, CBC miniseries, or it's a musical, or it's a Netflix production. Uh, but there, it, people find new ways to reinvent it. And I think that that's one of the things that keeps obviously keeps bringing it to new audiences. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I think I, I have to confess, like, so I was a father of Confederation when I was in high school. And, right. and I think they hired then and maybe later to less because you know, I was a great actor and more because I could grow a beard at 16 and speak passable French. I, I think that's, I think we should be honest about what the skill set was there for me. Anyway, my, my peers were better than I was, I think. But like, there was this one person that came up to me and said, oh, finally, like you're the first normal person I've met in Prince Edward Island as I'm wearing like a, you know, a, a, a Colonel Gray's top hat and, and, and three-piece suit and everything else. And, and it's, I think they, there are some that come here with the late 1800s as their image or the early 1900s of their image and, and are shocked by, you know, streets and, and cars and Starbucks and electricity and, and uh, whatever department stores we happen to have. Right. So I, I do like that disjointedness. I do like that surprise. So. Well, I gotta say, I mean, this is uh, growing up on Prince Island, you can't escape Anne, of course. <laughs> and um, we lived at the beginning of a dirt road and um, so down that dirt road, no um, telephone poles, for example. So in the 19th, early, when was that? Early, mid 1970s, I guess it was. Uh, this Japanese film crew came up with this little Jap red haired Japanese girl came and they, they uh, the film crew came with a horse and buggy and everything like that. And they filmed for a day. Yeah. And it was just so strange to imagine that these um, visitors had obviously come halfway across the world to to find not quite Green Gables, but close enough uh, to film a scene. So, yeah. yeah, well, the dirt roads are striking. Um, it's definitely part of my childhood. Yeah, although it is nice to see the springtime, the the overturned soil in the fields, I think, is even more striking. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe not as romantic as the when the the trees above our red red clay roads, right? When the trees kind of uh, cover over in the late spring through the fall, it's pretty brilliant. So, okay, so in person or or uh, visiting in different kind of capacities, you're this year's visiting scholar with the Ellen Montgomery Institute. Would you tell us just like, what is that program, and then let's dig in a little bit on what you're doing with it? Sure. Uh, well, I. I... I have to say that one of the most important components of being the visiting scholar is simply helping organize the biennial conference, uh, which is going on this June 22 to 26 June 2022, and uh, registration is open. Uh, and we're running a hybrid conference this year, which I'm really excited about the fact that we're having it both um, fully in person and fully remote as well. And I think that that's a great option uh, for people who are gonna have trouble traveling internationally or, or worry about traveling internationally or have health concerns or accessibility concerns. So it's kind of, it's 
daunting, but I think it's great that um, the LMMI is supporting a hybrid conference this this spring. Uh, so I've been involved in kind of every component of organizing this conference to date, the uh, call for papers, uh, the program, uh, applying to SHRC for funding support. Uh, and soon I'm sure I'll be getting into the nitty gritty of, of helping with determining coffees and, and uh, the thousand different things that go wrong when you're in the very last minutes of a conference as well. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm signed up. Uh, my wife and I will be there. I'll be presenting something and, and uh, she'll be uh, just enjoying it as a um, Montgomery reader uh, enjoying the, and of course late late June is a lovely time to be in PEI might also be haunting some folks with a, a microphone can you give us a peek of what the program is going to sure. look some of the things that you're connected with anyway yeah, yeah sure um, I mean I think that the conference is um, is a pretty jam-packed program when I uh, when I'm looking at it compared to I mean I think it follows the structures of previous programs for sure uh, but maybe helped by the fact that um, that there was not an in-person uh, pro, uh, conference in 2020 that didn't happen but what what would I tell you we have uh, two workshops um, on Wednesday to kick off the conference uh, one on sharing LMM stories and another on Mi'kmaq uh, police-based storytelling and maybe uh, get some uh, Montgomery scholars thinking about the relationship of how Montgomery um, deals with uh, Indigenous people in her writing, but also focus more on uh, Mi'kmaq uh, concepts of storytelling. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a roundtable on revisioning LMM studies through uh, an equity, diversity, and inclusion lens, which I'm pretty excited about. I think that's going to be an interesting way for an important way for the community of Montgomery scholars to, to think about what they're doing and what we're doing and what we're capable of doing. And we're having four keynotes, which is kind of jam-packed as well. Uh, I'm one of them, but I think the highlight is not going to be me. The highlight is going to be, well, the highlight is going to be everyone but me. How about I put it like that? But I think people are going to be excited that on uh, Wednesday night, Betsy Epperly and Ari Murioka uh, will be speaking on revision and translation of Anne of Green Gables. Mm. Uh, ba -ba -ba. Mara Gubar is speaking on Anne and the Cult of the Child. Mm. And Leslie Clement uh, will be speaking on Montgomery's Storytellers. And, you know, for the life of me, I can't even, I'm in there somewhere but I'm not sure when. I think Thursday, Friday, at some point I'll have to get this straight about when I'm presenting, but I am presenting as well. Yeah, it would certainly be good to be there on time. I think that's uh, a good- um... Yes a good rule for a keynote uh, speaker. And actually, we'll come back, actually, your topic. I, I know what your topic is. So let's come back to that a little bit later. But let's actually, is it okay we pause for a sec? I sometimes like to do this, uh, what I call a flash round and, and sort of homage to Emily of New Moon. These are just sort of nonsense questions, like the, the warm up in Captain Jim's parlor before we get to the real questions of life. Is that, is that something you're, you're game for? Uh, yes, I, I may pretend I can't hear you. Uh, so I may cut out at that point, or I may be like phoning a friend or Googling or something to find the right answers. But it, it, it's all fine. If you just say, Oh, I think I'm going through a tunnel here now, I'll understand that the, the cell phone's not connecting. Good stuff. Okay. Right. Okay. So, like, uh, are you a morning or a night person? Morning. Okay. Yeah, is that do, you want me to, do you want me to explain these or just? No, no. I actually want you to not think about them if you can help. Okay, morning. I'll, I'll query it. What about like, is that when you do your best writing too? Yes. Well, I don't know if I ever do my best writing. I'm still waiting, but uh, morning. 
most productive writing is that a better uh is that a better phrase yeah um a coffee or tea coffee then tea then tea yeah so you don't so it's not all day coffee all the time that's right yeah uh and that's the thing about like when you're writing is you need something to do with your hands you need you know while you're processing and we don't have the dipped pens anymore it's a, uh-huh. a different sort of tactile thing raspberry cordial or red current line <laughs> uh I guess raspberry cordial, I, I, that's the one I can remember most recently tasting. So let's say raspberry cordial. And I love raspberries. Oh, good. Oh, excellent. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I've ever had anything like a classic raspberry cordial that we'd get in history. I think I've just been mm-hmm. one of the tourist versions of them, but that's fine too. So, so thinking like in your learning as a historian over time, imagine that you have the ability to pop us into uh, the life of like one one person for one hour okay so where where would you put us totally unexpected totally totally you've got the science for it the technology where would you put us oh boy you can't say montgomery because that's like a cheat on this one um i'm not quite sure if this is the right answer but it is the first one that popped into my mind okay i love the story of ida lupino and Ida Lupino, it was a um, mid-century or early to mid-century um, Hollywood actress and director and famous as an actress, famous as a director. I'd love to know more. I'd love to, I'd like, not, maybe not quite what you asked. I'd love to interview Ida Lupino. Just pop in for an hour. Though. Yeah. Yeah. And take us with you. That's there were not a lot of women actors actresses not a, who were also directors there were not a lot of women directors yeah. so i would be very interested to talk to her for an hour yeah and of course as a historian that's how you help the rest of us time travel right as you write the book you interview you you look at the the, the facts first right so that's right yeah i don't know hopefully yeah okay so for you then uh and and writers tend to have particular answers for this, but it depends on the way you approach things. So I want you to choose one. So a day at the beach, a walk in the woods, an afternoon in the archive. Oh boy, not the archives. Not the anyway, archives. one of the others. Uh, <laughs> woods, probably. Yeah. Maybe a walk at the beach, to be honest, which I know is cheating. You did. But, you did just cheat. So, yeah. but this is uh, you, you. You didn't go for beach, even though you've written the book on national parks, which includes our North Shore beach line right that, that yeah. um, dozens of miles of beach line on the north shore so so uh i think that's a pretty good cheat it's a good compromise i think right well as my wife and daughter would tell you as soon as we arrive on the beach i start getting itchy and not with sand fleas but i just i i just don't want to sit around all day so i i, I love to take a long walk along the beach sounds very romantic i know by myself <laughs> and uh <laughs> so more so than just sitting on a towel for days yeah. yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah. And even then I have to have a book or a argument yeah. or something, right? If I'm si- if I'm sitting too long. So and PI, the evening is actually a great beach walking time, right? Um, mm. whatever season the wind drops a bit. And yeah. Yeah. So um what's like thinking about yourself as a historian, uh as a scholar, as a uh whatever thinker, what What's a book that was like influential to you in any part of your development? It doesn't have to be any one. It doesn't have to be fact or any one thing. Just any right. part of your development. Yeah. Um, again, maybe right or wrong is the one I'm going that pops in my head. Um, a book called "The Place to Belong" by Gerald Poshus. 
Okay. Gerald Pocious is, I guess he's an anthropologist studying uh, Newfoundland. And he talks about kind of the, I'm not even sure off the top of my head what you would call it, kind of the geography of, of houses in Outport, Newfoundland. And um, for example, like the structuring of one big TV with a smaller, newer TV sitting on top of it and things like that. <laughs> and A Place to Belong is just a great book. It's a great book. But I think it was, and it's not a, it's not a history book, I should say. It's kind of a, I don't know what it is, an anthropology book, I guess. But I got to say that at a certain point in my life, it was the first time I realized that I could actually write books about people and things I recognized, which was kind of important. I'd like to think that I can write books about beyond that, about just things I recognize and things from my childhood and things like that. But it was, it, it kind of opened a door for me and making me realize that you could actually write about places you know or people you know and do it in a way that has kind of a universality, a significance beyond the local. And that book was, that book was transformative, I guess I would say. Oh, excellent. No, that's, that's brilliant. I spent a, a couple of summers in Harbor Grace, which is... Yeah around the bay, around the bay from St. John's. And, and what I was struck with as a Prince Edward Islander moving to the island of Newfoundland was just how much there was. Like as a Prince Edward Islander, like we just don't have like distance between things. Yeah. Like our, our countryside neighbors are relatively close, right? Relatively. Uh, but like not like Newfoundland just has this huge amount of space and a whole like I guess they call them harbors or ports. Like there's different names. They have very technical names for their little towns and villages and like often cut off from one another for months or sometimes years at a time in history. Right. You know, it's a, it's a stunning, um, and just an amazing history to something that I, I was so foreign to me. Uh-huh. Yeah. Where uh, I was almost too close sometimes, uh, Prince of Rhode Island's real life. Right. Uh, you know, um, but yeah, not Newfoundland. So sorry. And then different accents, right. And each of these ports, each of these harbors had just a little different way of speaking about things or a little different, the houses had a different kind of culture of color or something like that. Right. It was kind mm-hmm. of neat. Yeah. That's, that's lovely. Brilliant. Yeah. So, so coming back to your work and thinking about then you, I, I love that. I love that idea that the belong idea and the, the history of everyday life idea. So let's look a little bit at some of your work. You actually wrote a book a little while ago on um, Miramichi as a community. Do you tell us about this? Cause the reviews are really strong for this book. And I just like to hear a bit about that. Sure. Thanks. Um, yeah. I, um, uh published a book in 2020 with Nicole Queens called Miramichi Fire, A History, which uh, I don't know if anyone got the joke in the title, but mostly there's not histories of forest fires, but, uh, or histories of fire, but uh, the Miramichi Fire of 7th October, 1825 is considered uh, maybe the largest forest fire in Canadian history, certainly the largest one on the eastern seaboard of North America. Um, the, and really, in a lot of ways, in global terms, like the first one to kind of get into people's imagination to imagine, especially in North America, that we could burn this whole place down. Yeah. And uh, the book really came out of my, my looking for the topic and finding it kind of remarkable that nobody had written on it and that there was the longest thing I could find in the last almost 200 years of writing about it is um, eight pages long. Mm-hmm. 
So I was trying to, on the one hand, kind of reconstruct what actually happened in this fire. And, and um, so it was about, it was considered to be about, uh, it's very hard to know exact size or anything like that, or how many people exactly died in that, but it's considered to have burnt about one fifth of New Brunswick. And also the very same day, it burned the largest fire in Maine, in Maine's history. Uh, So trying to kind of recreate the fire across an international border and to see how the international border, like New Brunswickers kind of paid attention to what was going on in New Brunswick. Uh, Downeasters did what was going on in Maine. Mm -hmm. So I I tried to reconstruct it. And um, it's it's on one part, the book is kind of a, um, you know, a, a study of how things are remembered and forgotten in history. It's kind of a local history of the Miramichi, uh, northeastern New Brunswick, but it's also very much uh, an environmental history. So to try to understand how the kind of the the fact that nature was getting in the first of all, the fire is all about nature. It's all about the fire itself. It's all about um, the burning of trees, about the growing of trees and the burning of trees. And it's also, I think, about how the regrowth of trees kind of hid the fire. The, the after effects of it, because basically these were healthy forests, everything bounced back afterward. And by the late 19th century, everyone thought, well, that must have been exaggerated because look at all the big trees that are standing here now. Mm. So it, uh, I don't know, it, it was a, a fun, difficult uh, book to write, but, uh, but I'm pretty proud of it in terms of kind of capturing, uh, uh, I guess I would say kind of, discovering this place in the middle of the woods in the early 19th century. I mean, it's an, it's an event, it's a place, it's a time that's been really kind of forgotten in history. And it was fun to go back and, um, and discover it again. Nice. Nice. Was it, there's two ways I want to ask this question. You can decide which way you want to answer the, the first way is like, is there a root cause that we know of the fire? And the second way is would this fire have happened without, like in this kind of way without European settlements, like 200 years earlier, 400 years earlier? Right. Um, I would say that's a, that's a great question and it's a two-part question, but I think both parts are pretty important. In a way, I kind of date the fire ultimately to a volcano in Indonesia in 1850 that caused the 1816 uh, year without a summer. Mm -hmm. And what that meant is that in the late 1810s and early 1820s, um, it was cool. It was wet. There were not a lot of forest fires. So vegetation was kind of allowed to have the opportunity to kind of grow back without burning. And in terms of the European settlement part of this, Miramichi really gets um, populated in just in the decade before the fire. So all these people who are coming from places like Ireland and Scotland, which really don't have any forests anymore, they come to this place, they don't know anything about the North American forest. They know nothing about North American forest fires because none have really happened since they arrived here. And then 1825 is the maybe the hottest year on record in the 19th century. And it was good conditions for forest fire. So the people weren't ready for it and the forests were ready for it. So I think it's between those two things. Oh, excellent. That's a good good answer. And by the way, I mentioned Frankenstein earlier and Shelley wrote Frank and Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein in 1816 in that, in the summer of gloom uh, as a, a 
but they were burning because they were cold in the middle of July. They were burning wood to stay cheery and warm uh, in, in Europe, like in mainland Europe in the middle of uh, summer. Right. So it's a kind of a, an amazing story in that kind of sense, but yeah, no, the, the forests are already gone just despite what the fairy tales of Britain say. Right. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, and, and you've talked and then I think, so then the next book must be this, the summer trade with Ed, is that right? That's right. Yeah. Summer trade history of tourism on Prince Edward Island, which is coming out again with McGill Queens and, in the coming weeks, uh, any day now, really. And it really, it looks at the beginning of tourism on PEI, which, you know, you're always trying to find the first one, like, which is kind of impossible, but certainly by the 1870s, we're going strong that we're having resorts uh, on the North Shore. And so we trace that history of tourism all the way forward from 1870 up to 2021. Yeah. Mm, excellent, excellent. Would you, like, is there... Is there something that um, you could tease us with? Like, is there, I I didn't ask for a reading or anything uh, or set this up at all, but just, is there like a tidbit, a thought, a question or a image, an idea, something unusual that we might not know, even lovers of Prince Edward Island that came out of your work with with, uh, Ed McDonald on this book that you could share or like almost share for us? (laughs) Well, uh, what would I say? I mean, one thing that might be of interest to uh, Montgomery scholars is, the seaside hotel in anglo rustico which starts up which is basically one of two resorts that starts up in the 1870 and really gets tourism coming starting up it's really something you can point to as having um as being influential as attracting it's it's attracting um travel literature and things like that in the 1870s and it's it goes strong up until the early 20th century and so it's kind of the first generation. The Seaside Hotel is, is maybe the best of the early, not maybe, it is the best of the early um, PEI resort hotels. And it becomes, I mean, it's not 100% that you can't draw a connection. Uh, there's no smoking gun, I guess I would say, but, but it seems pretty obvious that that is the inspiration for the White Sands Hotel oh, um, in Anna Green Gables. So uh, it's interesting maybe in another way because it it was because it was in Anglo Rustico, which is just east of Rustico, that was really the center of tourism on PEI. Nobody Cavendish wasn't really on anyone's radar mm. um, until there were no hotels, there was no anything, not on the tourist radar until uh end of Green Gables. Mm. So that's kind of interesting too, I think. No, intriguing. No, that that's good. That's a good tidbit. Yeah, I for some, I think it must be the those Kevin Sullivan and miniseries that puts in mind. I guess I think of Brackley when I think of the White Sands Hotel. I probably that's probably where I I went as a child mentally. Right? Was the um, well, I think the Sullivan one uses Dalvey, doesn't it? Yeah, Dalvey, the Dalvey. Yeah. 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 So that whole shoreline is. So I imagine it on that shoreline, uh, but Anglo Rustica would actually look to that shoreline more than actually be that shoreline in a sense. That's true. Yeah, yeah. But, but really quite far from Avonlea, from Cavendish by, by um, buggy, right? That would be quite a, quite a distance, I think. So a little bit. Yeah. 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 Okay, good. Yeah. No, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Now, and you, you've already kind of mentioned it. Your, your keynote talk is on um, a new project that you're working on that you're in the midst of. Do you want to set that up for us uh, so that we'll get us a, a sense of what, you will be doing at the conference, but also kind of what's coming from you ahead in terms of publication. Sure. 
The keynote is hopefully going to be the title of the eventual book as well, and which I'm at the moment, at least I'm calling it the webs of Green Gables. It's about the family who lived uh, in the house on the farm in Cavendish BEI, the, the house that we now think of as Green Gables, Green Gables Heritage Place is I think what it's formally called now, uh, that is of course said to have inspired um, the setting for Anne of Green Gables. And uh, Myrtle Webb lived there uh, from the 1890s onward. Uh, her husband, uh, she married Ernest Webb, and they uh, lived together there from 1909 on, or 1909, excuse, 1907 on, excuse me. They farmed it for 30 years. They ended up, even when it was sold under threat of expropriation for the creation of PEI National Park in 1936, they actually continued to live there. So they were actually living within the park, within Green Gables between 1936 and 1945 um, until they were evicted actually with two weeks notice. Um, And uh, I, I think it's just such an amazing story and it gives us a new way of a different way of understanding kind of Green Gables, the house, and even I think more broadly, kind of the, the development of Green Gables, the brand, even Ellen Montgomery, the brand, because and Green Gables gets published in 1908. By 1909, people are already coming to the web farm because they've been told it's the inspiration for Anne of Green Gables. They're already popping in. They're already coming in and, and wandering down Lover's Lane on their own. By the 1920s, um, the webs are taking in borders themselves and really they are um, integral to actually making Green Gables and Cavendish um, the heart of tourism on Prince Edward Island. Um, Now the book I'm writing is based largely on a diary that Myrtle Webb, uh, wife and mother kept uh, from 1924 She kept it faithfully from 1924 to 1945 and then kept it sporadically for the next decade. And so I've had the pleasure, I guess you would call it, of this winter um, during COVID again, Mm. what is this second, third, fourth, ninth winter of COVID, of basically staying home and writing uh, a book based largely on this diary of Myrtle Webb and to try to understand the Webb family better and and where it fits into our understanding of Prince Edward Island history and of Montgomery studies and, and things like that. Yeah. And this this all comes out of the 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 journals. Is that that where it begins for you, right? That's right. Uh, I was I was really fortunate. I wrote a little bit about the Webb family when I was writing an earlier book called Natural Selections on National Parks in Atlanta, Canada. I mentioned the webs and um, the members of the web family liked what I had to say or liked how I said it about their family and about their relationship to PEI National Park. So they tracked me down a few years ago and said, we have this diary. Would you be interested in writing a book based around the diary? And my first reaction, I got to say, I looked at this. It's about it's a gigantic um, well, it's a 30-year diary. It's kind of a gigantic affair. Mm. And my first reaction was a little trepidation. But when I got into it, I really started loving um, Myrtle's kind of presentation. Very kind of ordinary. I'm not trying to oversell this as being this. She's not a kind of journal 
journal journalist as Montgomery herself is. She's not writing pages and pages. She's writing these little short, snappy, prosaic entries about uh, her life. But the accumulation of that, I think you really get a feeling for what's going on at Green Gables, in the family, and even in Prince Edward Island in this period. So Excellent. I think that's that's a great kind of combination of like skill set and opportunity. Yeah. And, and again, it goes back to kind of what you said about that important book on, on belonging and space is going to the particular rather yeah. than just like simply the exceptional or simply the, the, the data or something like that, right? That allows that kind of um, that focal point on, 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 on regularity to show us what is beautiful inside of it. So I like that. I think that really works. We'll get to see your talk. Uh, the book, is this a 10-year project? Is it a two-year project? That's a great question. I mean, uh, as much as I'm, um, I'm glad, of course, to be affiliated with the LMMI, but I'm also feel like I'm going to exploit the community like crazy, mm -hmm. because I really want to kind of present this and this kind of different way of looking at, at Green Gables, at Ellen Montgomery. And I want people, I want people to read it and push back at kind of my presentation of, of what that means. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to the conference uh, as far as that's concerned. Uh, is this a 10-year project? No. I mean, I, I think the family um, is very interested in seeing the book. I'm, I'm very interested in seeing the book myself. So I'm kind of hoping, I mean, it's, it's early days for me to say this, but I would love this book to come out at, let's say, by the end of 2023. But uh, that's optimistic, maybe on my part. Uh, well, if book writers can't be optimists, then we're in some degree of trouble. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So do you have something from Myrtle's diary that, that you could share just even just a little tidbit? Uh, I was going to, you asked me if, uh, if I could find an entry or something that I really liked. And I got to say, here's one of my favorites. And this is from um, 18 November, 1930. So Myrtle here is 47 years old. Uh, she's had some years of bad health, but 1930 was a good year. She'd been healthy all the year. And she writes on that day, quote, Lovely day. Went down to mailbox in morning, then lay in the sun for an hour and a half down in the hollow below the road. <laughs> Pretty good for November. Marion got a letter from Maud and has decided to go away December 4th, unquote. I just love the idea of her. And I mean, here's Here's a woman with five kids. Maybe this is a factor in it too. <laughs> um, she walks down the lane at Green Gables to pick up the mail. And then she just finds no hurry to go back to the house. Um, she just decides that rather that she's just going to lie down in the middle of the field with the sky rushing by overhead. Um, I just love that image. Mm, it's, a long, it's a long walk down the lane there. Yeah, long enough. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Well, that's a that's a I think a beautiful way to finish. Thanks so much for being with us, Alan. Well, thanks very much for having me, Brendan. Excellent. Well, so I just want to uh, uh, remind folks uh, that you can always check out some of the details in the show notes, including information about the LMMI Visiting Scholar Program and the conference that's up. And I believe registrations are open now for the Montgomery Conference. That's June 22nd to 26th. Is that right? 
Yeah, yep, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So, and that's this coming June. Uh, so, uh, for those in the future, I hope that you can then look forward because the call for papers for the twenty four conference will be out uh, in the springtime of twenty three. So, even if you're catching this later, you can always still be part of the program. And as we come to a close, I always, as always, want to thank all those that are involved, including, as been mentioned, our library supports, where we have uh, KindredSpirits.ca as part of. Of, uh, the work of the Ella Montgomery Institute and the UPI Library. It's a great partnership. The Journal of Ella Montgomery uh, Studies, which has a number of these sorts of studies that I think are really interesting uh, to folks that want to dig more deeply into Montgomery's work. And if you've enjoyed the Modcast and would like others to enjoy it as well, please share on social media, give us a rating. It really helps to spread the news about the Modcast, about the Institute's work, and makes that connection to things like books and conferences more immediate and personal for people that happen to stumble upon them. I am your host, Brenton Dickerson, and I'm here with Technical Director Christy McKinney. Now, thinking about our conversation today, I, I would uh, wish for you the chance to lay in the sun for an hour and a half, um, down in the hollow beside the road, or along any bend in the road that you might find. Farewell. <laughs>